following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. At the time of this podcast recording, Statistics Canada was temporarily unavailable due to cybersecurity issues. Therefore, the statistic I'm about to read is from a UK study. In this particular case, stalking is presumed but unconfirmed. However, as you'll see, it's very likely. Stalking of various kinds are prevalent in society, and in further episodes, I will dive more into these types of cases, as I feel they are very important to discuss. Quote, Stalking behavior has been identified in 9 in 10 murders studied by criminologists as part of research examining a link between the two crimes. The six-month study by the University of Gloucester found stalking was present in 94% of the 358 cases of criminal homicides they looked at. Surveillance activity, including covert watching, was recorded 63% of the time, end quote. On August 17, 2005, a 25-year-old woman disappeared without a trace. Her boyfriend had been the last person to see her and called 911 to report her missing, casting himself as a likely suspect. But all that would change when just over a month later, her killer revealed himself, shocking a whole community. This is the story of Alicia Ross. Alicia Heather Ross was born on February 8, 1980, and her family lived in Markham, Ontario, Canada. Although I'm not sure if that is where she was born or just raised primarily. She was adopted at birth by her parents, Sharon and Marvin, and three years later, the family welcomed an adopted boy named Jamie. As a child, she was remembered as having the chubbiest cheeks and beautiful blue-green eyes that stood out to everyone she came in contact with. Her mother stated, quote, she was an adorable and good baby, a precocious toddler, a blossoming preteen, and a terrible, terrible teenager, end quote. Her childhood was quite average, but at 11 years old, her parents remarried, her mother marrying a man named Julius and her father marrying a woman named Anna. And I'm not sure how long they were separated or the process the family went through, but after her parents remarried, Alicia's family grew to include six more step-siblings. In her teenage years, Alicia became more rebellious, and this is when the, quote, birth of her no-fear attitude to life, end quote, came into play. But she was also extremely loving and loyal to her family and friends. She was always adventurous and loved traveling and being outdoors. At eight years old, she was introduced to tripping, which is camping out and canoeing trips that her and her brother fell in love with. This love of travel and adventure took her all over the world, including Israel, Australia, Peru, and even whitewater rafting in the Amazon. She also frequented various national parks in Ontario, 
in Canada and was planning her next trip to Costa Rica. As I mentioned, at the time of her death, the family was living in Markham, Ontario, but I couldn't find any information about where she was born or if she grew up in Markham, but I believe she did, or at least in that general area. Markham, for those of you that don't know, is a city in the region of York, which is considered to be in the GTA or Greater Toronto Area. This term refers to a large populous area surrounding the capital of Ontario and is the most populated metropolitan area in Canada. Markham itself is approximately 30 kilometers or 19 miles from Toronto and has a population of 328,966 as of 2016 and is considered very suburban. With many tech companies choosing Markham for their Canadian headquarters, it's also known as Canada's high-tech capital, which I actually didn't know before this, and I live in Toronto. But it makes sense as IBM, Motorola, Apple, and others have set up their headquarters there. In 2005, Alicia was working for Hewlett-Packard, which is now known as HP Inc., which makes computers, printers, and other related items. She was up for a promotion in her sales role and was living in her family's basement, which had a separate entrance, giving her more independence as she grew into adulthood. This was a happy time in her life. Her boyfriend, Sean Hine, and her had been dating about a month and a half, and things were just overall really good in her life. All that would change on the evening of August 17th, 2005. Alicia and Sean had spent the night playing pool and hanging out, going back to her basement room for a while before he went home around 12 a.m., he called her shortly after midnight when he got home, but received no response. The next morning, around 10 a.m., he called her again, but once more, his call went unanswered. He went to the house, but no one answered the door, and at some point, it was discovered that Alicia had not shown up for work either, and that her car was also in the driveway, meaning she likely hadn't gone anywhere on her own. Although this timeline of events is sort of pushed together as one group of events in the reports, so I'm not really sure how the morning exactly unfolded, but Sean ultimately called police to report Alicia missing and then called her parents to notify them of what was going on. Her parents immediately rushed home, I assume from work, but when they arrived, they were devastated to see their street covered in police vehicles and their home filled with officers looking for any sign of Alicia. What they did find just reinforced that she had likely not left willingly. On her mother's website devoted to her daughter's story, she wrote, quote, In Alicia's room were her cell phone, her purse, her cigarettes, her keys. Her bed had not been slept in. Her laundry lay folded, ready to be put away. Her ring was by the bathroom sink. She'd washed for bed. Her car was in the driveway. She'd never gone to work. The backyard was strewn with Alicia's shoes, a glass, a cigarette, and the backyard gate had been left open. A sickness fell over us, end quote. 
Police were quick to treat this case as a missing persons and suspected foul play, believing she was likely kidnapped. They began interviewing Sean, along with friends, family, and neighbors, to put together an idea of what might have happened to Alicia. Which is good, because at 25 years old, she was an adult, and police don't always react so quickly to these types of cases. But search parties were immediately organized, and media outlets jumped on the story, plastering Alicia's face and story all over the province. On her mother's website, she does write that she saw her daughter around 11 p.m. that night in the basement and that Sean said goodbye at 12 a.m., sort of implying she witnessed their goodbye. But once I go into the events of what actually happened, that part's a little bit confusing, and I don't think she actually did witness the goodbye, but I'll touch on that later. I also say they rushed home from work, likely, but never does it really say where the parents were that morning or if they even spent the night in the house. But again, I'll go into that a little bit later. Volunteers and police searched for weeks following Alicia's disappearance. Nearby to the family home are wooded areas and ravines that police felt could hold clues to her whereabouts. But day after day, the search came up empty. Her family and friends hoped for the best outcome, confident that Alicia would be returned to them safely. Her boyfriend, Sean Hines, saying, quote, She's the strongest girl I know. I just know she'll find her way home. End quote. The family of Alicia were actually very upset with Sean, though, as he was apparently unwilling to really help, be it from answering police questions or talking to the family. In a statement I found from Alicia's family, it stated that her mother said she was, quote, begging him to go to the police to help our family, to help find Alicia. He hung up on her, end quote. There's reports that police canvassed Sean's neighborhood to see if he was spotted taking out the trash in the days that followed Alicia's disappearance. He was questioned about his quick reaction to call the police and report her missing after just a few hours and two missed calls. And lots of speculation began to swirl. So by August 29th, he had stopped cooperating with police and refused to take a polygraph test. Being the last person to see her, he was definitely a person of interest and that was made known. So his unwillingness to speak was likely for the best, especially his refusal to take a very unreliable polygraph test, which has been proven to get false readings just time and time again. I know it's upsetting to family and it's perceived as uncooperative, but it's clear he didn't know anything else about her disappearance. And so why would he continue to undergo police questioning? Oftentimes, with no suspects or leads to go on, the person of interest gets railroaded by investigators looking for answers, and anything he says could have been twisted to make him look guilty. So, unfortunately, I can see why he likely stepped back from the investigation. Even him volunteering to search for her could have looked like he was revisiting the scene of the crime, 
especially if he had ended up finding her body or any of the clues. While some cases with limited leads or suspects can go on for years and turn cold, thankfully that did not happen in this case. Just over one month after her disappearance, on September 21st, 2005, her killer confessed and surrendered himself to police. That person was 31-year-old Daniel Sylvester, Alicia's next-door neighbor. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is a 100% one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. And if you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. I will leave the link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of December 2021 is Redwood Shelter, which is a local Toronto shelter that provides a safe haven for women and children experiencing domestic violence. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. The shock of Daniel coming forward and confessing radiated throughout the community. His mother and him, I believe, had been questioned after her disappearance during the standard neighborhood canvassing, but no one had suspected him, nor was he considered a person of interest prior. In fact, media attention had started to wane on Alicia's case due to Hurricane Katrina, which was decimating Louisiana at the time. And the temporary communication center they'd set up for public tips and volunteers was dismantled as school began back up. In fact, had he not come forward, I don't think he ever would have been found guilty, even if suspected. No one saw him do anything, and while considered a recluse and a bit odd by neighbors, there was no physical evidence found linking him. And since her body had not been found either, There was no evidence of her actually being dead, let alone murdered. Although I'm sure as time passed, it was becoming a much more likely scenario. Daniel hired a lawyer named David Hobson and went to the police station to confess and tell them where Alicia's body was located. While he admitted he had killed her, he also claimed he had not intended to. Nevertheless, he was charged with second-degree murder. At trial, his account of events came to light. He claims to have run into Alicia at the side path of her home 
and that they exchanged words and that she made a comment to him that triggered him. Quote, she insulted me and called me a loser and that's what really got me going, end quote. He then slapped her and then repeatedly kneed her in the chest before slamming her head two to three times into the ground, killing her. He says he then lined the inside of his truck and put her body inside it, cleaned up the blood, took a shower, and got a few hours of sleep before driving her body 80 kilometers or 50 miles to the area of Cresswell, which is a small village. When found, her body had been dismembered and scattered in the wooded areas. I'm not sure when he dismembered her. I assume he did it on location, but it seems odd to do that in an area you aren't familiar with, as the sun would have been coming up soon too. Unless he was familiar with the area or had actually planned the crime prior. It's also stated in a change.org petition that he hid her, quote, semen-stained clothing, end quote, which implies her murder was sexually motivated, which at trial the prosecutors did argue as well, stating that Daniel himself admitted he was a, quote, voyeur, peeping Tom, and excessive masturbator, end quote. He was eventually sentenced to life in prison for second-degree murder with no possibility of parole for 16 years. He was eligible for parole this past year in 2021, and while I did find the change.org petition asking for signatures against his potential parole, I couldn't find anything about the outcome or even if a parole hearing was granted. I know with the pandemic, many legal hearings are extremely backed up, so potentially he hasn't even had a hearing yet. Personally, I hope he remains in prison for a lot longer. 16 years is just not enough time for his crime. I just want to discuss some things now that I have opinions on or found in articles and want to address further. One is that Alicia's former boyfriend, Dave, was also a person of interest. From what I gather, it was brief though, and it was more focused on Sean. The turmoil between Sean and the family during the investigation was exasperated by comments he made following Daniel's confession when he claimed her stepfather had apologized to him, which the family denies occurring. He also claimed Alicia had, quote, serious problems, end quote, with her former boyfriend, Dave, which again, the family denied, saying that they'd remained friends following the breakup, and they even asked Dave to carry her casket at the funeral. I obviously don't know the whole situation, and I'm sure more was said on both sides, but her mother commented about the situation, saying, quote, as far as our family is concerned, we don't owe Sean Hine an apology. Rather, we are disappointed that he is, after the fact, now making himself so available for comment. Comments which are aggravating our already unbearable situation. 
She added, many people, including persons of interest, were interviewed by police over and over again. No one considered it being bugged or bothered. Many people considered it an honor to be interviewed if it meant helping our family find Alicia, end quote. Again, I can understand the family side and the thought of, well, if you have nothing to hide, why aren't you helping? But I think up until Daniel's confession, it's likely they suspected Sean as well and wanted him to help because they thought he had more information. And as I previously said, I understand why he didn't take the polygraph or continue talking to police, especially since he didn't actually know anything else. I also understand him wanting to comment afterwards to confirm his innocence and have that validation that he had nothing to do with it. But nothing needed to be said regarding the family or Alicia's personal life. He could have just said he was happy her killer will be brought to justice and that his suspicion had been lifted. But bringing a grieving family into a public disagreement is just unnecessary. Again, I only know what I read, and there is always three sides to a story. But that is my thoughts on that situation. And there was media coverage on this feud, so I wanted to discuss it just a little bit further. My questions about this case are more about the actual crime scene. Her items were found leading to an open back gate. So was Daniel's vehicle in that direction? Or did he stage the scene to look like an abduction? What about the blood? Was it a paved pathway, a dirt ground? How did he clean it up so that no one could tell that she was murdered there? And how did her parents not hear anything if they were sleeping in the house? Or were they out? And I mentioned that before, but I'm very confused by these details, and I just wonder how he was able to get away with it from the beginning. And while I know his confession shocked everyone, and that must mean that the scene wasn't an obvious murder, I feel like that then takes a lot more planning than he's claiming. Along with the distance he traveled, the dismemberment, getting home before anyone realized what had happened... I think Daniel likely planned her murder and surprised her with the attack. I'd even say she probably didn't even have time to react, let alone make any comments to him. His confession feels like the need to prove his worth, that he was capable of doing it and wanted the recognition. His statement at trial and his crocodile tears about taking her life feels like a ploy to gain sympathy so that his sentence would be reduced or he would be allowed parole one day. As he showed no remorse or emotion during the entire trial, he likely stalked her and watched her for years, waiting for the opportunity to attack. Why else would he have wanted to talk to her in a pathway at midnight? I don't buy that he just ran into her and neither did the prosecutors at trial. But those are just my thoughts, and obviously I don't have all the court transcripts and all the details. It's just what I could find on the internet. 
it just seems much more calculated than he let on. But of course, I could be wrong, and I'm just reading too much true crime and coming to my own conclusions. But I would love to know your thoughts on this case and your takeaways. Feel free to reach out on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast or my Facebook discussion group. Regardless of why or how it happened, the fact remains that a beautiful, smart, and loving young woman who was just starting to create the life that she wanted for herself was taken too early, leaving her friends and family with a hole in their hearts and in their lives forever. As her mother said, quote, There's always the yearning when you lose a child it's almost like an addiction. You want that child back, end quote. And her friend adding on that recent petition, quote, because I'm still mourning the loss of my best friend 15 years later, end quote. Thank you for listening to the story of Alicia Ross. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.